The scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated, and I want to invite Daniel up to the stage now. Uh, Pastor Daniel is a pastor in Sacramento, one of our sister churches, Grace Sacramento. And Daniel is also actually a member of our temporary session. So he's one of the guys that has been uh, helping oversee our church, and uh, he's very graciously given his morning to come guest preach for us. And so welcome, Daniel. Feel free to introduce yourself a little bit more. Good morning. Yes, as uh, Kevin mentioned, my name is Daniel. I serve as one of two pastors in Grace uh, at Grace Sacramento. We we co-pastor a church that we uh, we planted back in 2017, and so it's been exciting to uh, to share that responsibility with a friend, and to have opportunities like this to come and spend time with all of you here in Fremont. I have uh, three kids, uh, whom I love uh, equally. Uh, I have uh, two boys and one girl. And so you see how the, I mean, 33% is, I mean, 33 and one-third percent is, I mean, it's, it's hard to try to figure out how to love each one equally, but I do. I love uh, all three of them equally, 33 and, and uh, you know, 0.33% and 33.33% and then 33.3, and just a little bit, 33.34% uh, for my little girl, but uh, they're not little anymore. Uh, they're, they're all uh, growing up really fast. As I see, there's uh, older kids here in the room as well. I have a 19-year-old and a 17 and a 15-year-old. And so I know you're looking at me and saying, there, there's no way uh, that you have a 19-year-old. But uh, I do, uh, first year in, in college. But thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for allowing me the time to, uh, to spend with all of you. Um, and again, it's what a pleasure just to come and celebrate the, uh, the body of Christ with all of you uh, here this morning. In a conversation with his disciples, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? Probably the most significant question ever asked, who is Jesus Christ? Where did he come from and why did he come and what difference does that make for me? In response, the disciples offer four different answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some thought he was a prophet, others a great political leader. Still others thought he was John the Baptist come back to life. 
If polls of the same question, what might we hear today concerning who Jesus is? Some say he was a good man, others a revolutionary, a misunderstood rabbi, a brilliant teacher, still others a notable religious leader among the likes of Buddha or Gandhi or Muhammad or the Dalai Lama. Who is Jesus? Our text this morning contains a remarkably clear answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? A short section in the book of Philippians tucked away in chapter 2. Again, we call it Christology because it really is a study of who Jesus is, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The passage that we're looking at this morning essentially reveals to us the entire career of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? In Philippians chapter 2, it begins with Christ in the heavens. And then we see him taking on human flesh and coming to us as a servant. And then his humiliating humiliating death on a cross and then concludes with his triumphant return to heaven. It begins with Christ in heaven and then ends with Christ in heaven. And we'll, again, we'll ask and answer this question, who is Jesus? And then try to figure out who this Jesus is to us. So let's take a look at the uh, text together. Uh, We'll look at verse six and we'll look at from that point on again in verse six, Paul writes, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So first, Paul begins by stressing the the pre-existence of God. In other words, he was before he was. The Bible tells us that he had existed from the beginning of time. It's Paul's version of John chapter 1, verse 1. You may know that if you know the Gospel of John, it begins, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The language, in the form of God, is nothing less than the declaration of the deity of Jesus. Whatever it is that makes God God, Jesus possessed the same essence. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. He was God and and possessed all that God had. He was 100% God and nothing less. All the qualities, all the attributes, all the characteristics, all the distinctives of deity belong to Jesus Christ. He was in possession of all the attributes of God. Whatever we know about God... His omnipotence, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his holiness, his eternality, his wisdom, his justice. We have to attribute to Jesus as well because, again, he was truly equal with God. And, again, this is vitally important. What one thinks about Christ determines what one thinks about everything else. A lot of theology. I apologize. But, again, as we look at uh, the section here uh, in verse 6, it's, who he was, and then verse 7 and 8, what he became. So verse 6, the latter part of verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Again, this precious, these previous verses clearly show the divinity of, of Jesus, but now you see the humanity of Jesus as well. He became man. This is the incarnation, God becoming flesh. The same that we see in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In every conceivable way you define humanity, define a person, a real man with flesh and bone, Jesus was. He was both. 
What the previous verse explains about his divinity, these, again, words speak of the humanity of Jesus, the divine nature and the human nature, what the early church fathers uh, called the hypostatic union. Again, these are all big, fancy words, but again, it's not a mixture of the two, but two natures, perfect yet distinct, fully divine and fully human at the same time. And the passage tells us that this is what he became, God in human flesh. So verse 6 tells us who he was. Verse 7 and 8 tells us what he became. And then this last part tells us what he does. So let's look at this real quick. Uh, Fully divine and fully human at the same time. Again, it's the Greek word kenosis. It's a word that means uh, emptying or making himself nothing making himself of no regard. He did not regard his position as God, uh, as God, as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Jesus emptied himself. And so the question I ask this morning is, what did Jesus empty himself of? You ever ask that question? What did Jesus empty himself of when he came to earth as a man? Ever think about that? What did Jesus empty himself of? Of divine attributes? Power? Or wisdom? Sovereignty? Holiness? Eternality? Or justice? Or of his divine nature? Jesus ceased to be God during his earthly ministry. What did Jesus empty himself of? Did he give up some of the attributes and retain other ones? Some theologians might say he gave up his metaphysical attributes. So for one, he gave up his omnipotence or he gave up his omniscience or his omnipresence. That he is all-powerful and all-knowing and be at all places at the same time. And some say, again, he he gave those up and yet retained others, like the moral attributes of of love and, and holiness and justice. My argument here this morning would be that perhaps God retained both. You see, if Jesus Christ gave up being omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent, then we might say in effect that he ceases to be God. He is no longer God. We give up, why give up some and retain others? Again, we read about the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus and we realize that again, he did not give up those things. Did he not heal the sick? Did he not cast out demons and and raise the dead to life? Did he not calm the storms? All a display of his omnipotence, his power. We find stories upon stories of the omniscience of Jesus. We know that he knew the sin of the woman at the well, that she had been with many others. uh, She had many husbands, and the one she was living living with was was, was not uh, her husband. Uh, He knew where to find the donkey before the Passover. Again, he he knew all things. He knew everything. In his divine nature, he knew these things because Jesus Christ never ceases to be fully God upon this earth. Paul says about Christ in Colossians 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lay in bodily form. So again, what did Jesus give up? What did he empty himself of? I believe our clues can be taken right from the text. The Bible tells us he became nothing. 
In contemporary terms, he became a nobody. Our text tells us that he emptied himself. Other translations say he made himself of no reputation. Uh, Eugene Peterson, a, a translator or a Bible scholar, again, he, he translates this section in, in a Bible that they've uh, called the message version. In verse 6, it says he had equal status with God, referring to Jesus, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of the status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave becoming human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredible, humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. There's something extraordinary happening about the Incarnation. That though he was in the form of God, he never ever ceased to be God. But again, if we can get our clues from the text, again, he veiled his glory except on certain occasions. And we know that the, the Mount of Transfiguration, he goes and he shows himself in his transfigured state to three of his disciples. When we read he appeared in human likeness, he became a man fully and truly without ceasing to be God. The word likeness means to all outward appearances... He was merely a man, but in reality, he was more than a man. He was God in human flesh. He was found in appearance as a man. Let me try to explain again. If you were walking around the first century, again, Jesus is there. He's walking around. Would you notice and would you say, that's, that's God walking among us? And perhaps if he was here in our, in our context, we wouldn't know that. Again, if unless we saw the, the signs and we saw the, the miracles that he would perform and the things that he said. But just from external appearances, he was found in appearance as a man. So in verse 8, it tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8 tells us the ultimate humiliation, the depth of Christ's humiliation. We often forget what crucifixion was like in the first century. It was a punishment so barbaric the Romans reserved it for the worst of criminals. No Roman citizen could be crucified except on direct order from the emperor. To the Jews, it was the worst possible fate. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses writes, again, he pronounces a curse upon anyone who is hung on a tree. So what did the Lord empty himself of? Certainly, if not his divine attributes, metaphysical or moral or otherwise, then of what? Perhaps he laid aside position. He was and continued to be God, but at his incarnation, our Lord stepped down, as it were, from his exalted position besides the Father in glory, and now instead assumed the position of the most humble servant. He became a man. He became as one of his creation. He relinquished, relinquished his rightful position to become the savior of sinners. Perhaps you could say that the Lord laid aside his possessions. The apostle Paul spoke of this when he wrote, For, your, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Ever think about Jesus' life? Jesus, all of his life, our Lord was, was borrowing things. He was born in a borrowed 
cattle trough. He rose to Jerusalem on a borrowed beast of burden. He was buried in a borrowed grave. Our Lord, who created all things, laid aside what was rightfully his. You see, servants are by very nature of their position poor, and these things he laid aside so that we might become rich. Perhaps Jesus laid aside his privileges. A servant does not possess privileges. The master eats first, the servant later. The master has one entrance, the servant another. The master has one dwelling place, the servant one substantially inferior. The master is free to do as he wishes, and the servant has little freedom. All of the privileges which our Lord could have rightfully claimed, he willingly laid aside. He laid aside position and possession and privilege, but ultimately he chose to come to earth to take the place of subjection, of ultimate humility. He gave up his rights. He took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Paul, who is the writer of this particular book and the writer of other letters in the New Testament, begins this section uh, and other sections like it, talking about uh, why it's important for us to have unity and we accomplish our unity through humility. And I will confess to you, I have preached this particular passage a million times. Uh, I was talking to Pastor Kevin just earlier, just uh, before the service, and was telling him I have a whole, uh, whole Dropbox full of, of sermons I preach, and there's quite a few on Philippians chapter 2. So this is not a, a repeated sermon. This is a, a new sermon. I just preached it last week for the first time because, again, I, when you look at it with new eyes, when you look at it the way it's supposed to be read, it's really not about humility. It's really not about unity. It's about something else. Yes, humility leads to greater unity, which I have often thought of as a lesson for us in this text because the principle about humility or the unity without, without Christ Again, as you know, is nothing. You see what he gave up, what he emptied himself of. He gave up his rights. You know, most conflicts in the world arise because we want to assert or demand our rights. You know, and I know that we don't have any quarrels here at New Life Fremont. Uh, we always think about other people. But most of the, most of the tensions that you see uh, in the world has to do with do with whether or not a person has a right to something. It's the very foundation, the immovable foundation of our country. These ideas are ingrained into Americans as immovable, immovable foundations of our society. American society and Christianity have been so closely woven together that even the church expects to be granted their rights. But let me ask you this morning, is that biblical? Should Christians stand up and fight for their rights sometimes? When we were younger, we were taught this as basic truth. It definitely feels accurate because we feel deeply wronged if our liberty is violated. These rights may be God-given, but nowhere in Scripture do we find the idea that we ought to defend our rights. In fact, if I'm preaching from the text, it's the exact opposite. 
It's the willingness to waive one's rights. It's the willingness to lay aside our freedoms. It's the willingness to lay aside what we think is ours. What the Bible tells, what the scriptures tells us, it's the exact opposite. God gave the ultimate example of his son, Jesus Christ. He created the world and his, and his king over it. But in that crucial moment at the cross, when all of his rights as God and as a man were being violated, he requested the forgiveness of humanity. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, verse 5 is the crux. It's the, it's the hinge verse that connects verses 1 through 4 with verses 6 through 11. It serves as the hinge between these verses because Paul writes in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Paul's motive and foregoing his rights is the same one that, that Jesus thought. The same Paul who says in verse Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave so that I might win more. For though I am free from all men, though I have all the rights of a Roman citizen and the chief of priests, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Paul's motive in foregoing his rights was to present the gospel in the most attractive way possible, in the hope of winning more for Christ. Using our freedom, my friends, using our freedom to choose slavery. Now, this is a paradoxical thought, especially if we line this up with what we're facing in our culture. It's the exact opposite. Using our freedom to choose slavery. The underlying principle here should be noted. All Christian duty flows naturally from God's kindness, his humility, and his submission, his obedience on the cross. My friend, if the passage teaches us anything, if the passage teaches us anything, it's that we cannot pick up our cross and our rights at the same time. We cannot pick up our crosses and our rights at the same time. Demanding our rights, yes, is self-protection. And there are times when it calls for that. But Christ calls us to a lifestyle of self-sacrifice, a total abandonment for the gospel. The kenosis of our Lord, the emptying of Jesus, has application for us in those areas of our life that perhaps you or, or I have positions uh, of authority higher positions than others, and perhaps the kenosis principle in leadership may be the ideal place to manifest it. After all, who had a greater position of authority than Jesus? Jesus' disciples continually sought for positions of power and prestige. Jesus taught that the way to greatness was through service and self-sacrifice. Jesus said, 
You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great men exercise authority over them, but it is not so among you. But for whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What I teach and what we teach, the gospel that we believe, teaches a very different paradigm for how we should live. For he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. The principle of the kenosis principle applies to those areas where we have equality. Note that it was equality with God, something that he he did not cling to, something that he did not grasp. The kenosis principle instructs us that we might what we might demand by our by virtue of our equality may be that which we are to relinquish in order to be obedient servants. Position. And possession and privilege, these things that we possess, you and I may cling to it or we may lay it aside so that we can minister to others, many of whom desperately would love a share of our love and hospitality. Yes, we have certain privileges, and Paul teaches us that these liberties. They are to be laid aside, not because they are wrong, but because they fail to achieve what's in the best interest of others. This is paradoxical. This is an upside-down paradigm shift in the way we are to relate to one another and the way we are to relate with the world. Jesus laid aside his rights to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word that we are to take up our cross daily, uh, deny ourselves, and to follow you. And so we, God, we long to do that with our life, God, with our words, God, by our lifestyle. God, by what we say and perhaps what we don't say, God, we pray that, uh, that people would see Christ within us, a Christ who came to serve and humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, we thank you for your word that teaches us that there's great reward for us when we choose to lay it aside. God, I pray for, for New Life Fremont's God, we pray for, a, for this group to be, a, uh, to be a witness to a watching world who Jesus is. We thank you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.